you will turn in your Bible, please, to Ezekiel chapter 16, familiar passage. I know that it is not, I've not taken up something that is new to you. But I hope we can take it up with a new heart. This morning, Ezekiel chapter 16. And reading through verse 14. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do thee any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. Thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee, I saw thee polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, Live, yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxed great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bad. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was a time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broided work, and shod thee with the badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands and chain on thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown on thine head. Thou thus wast thou decked with gold and silver and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey oil. Thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper 
into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. For it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Turn with me again before the message to number 345, please. Stand with me now. 345. Jesus held enthroned in glory there forever to abide. All the heavenly host adore thee, seated at thy Father's side. Therefore, sinners, thou art pleading, there thou dost our place prepare, ever for us interceding, till in glory we appear. Worship, honor, power, and blessing Thou art worthy to receive Loudest praises without ceasing Meet it is for us to give Help ye bright angelic spirit Bring your sweetest, noblest ways Help to sing our Savior's merits Help to chant Emmanuel's praise And thank you, be seated I would take up this morning a message don't know how far I will get in it but I have desired to take up a message entitled the gospel worthy of God A word study. I've been thinking for the past few days, but especially this morning again, of our students who are now away in college, thinking about the gospel that they're hearing. <laughs> if gospel it may be called at all. But there is a gospel that is worthy of God. I have had a great burden on my heart in recent weeks to bring to you a gospel 
message. I fully realize that a gospel application may be brought from any text in God's holy word and that every text is more or less set in a gospel context. But having said that, we also realize that those of us that are here in this New Testament era usually refer to the gospel as that evangelical message of Christ and his method of salvation. That is, all of those elements of gospel truth contained in that message. In short, the message of man's deplorable condition and of God's unfathomable grace in the person and work of Christ. That has been typically that which we call the gospel. I want to show you in this message under three not so distinct or distinguishable headings and so I will give them to you in detail at the outset. I wish to show you in this message that no gospel, no gospel is a gospel worthy of our God if it does not, according to our text, do at least three things. First, it must, to be worthy of our God, a gospel must demonstrate to man, demonstrate to man the total, desperate hopelessness of his condition by nature. No gospel is worthy of our God that does not first demonstrate to man the total desperate hopelessness of his condition by nature. And secondly, we shall see, no gospel is a gospel worthy of our God that does not declare to man the absolute, sovereign, independent, divine nature of this God. In other words, his regal right to do whatsoever he will. I tried to remember even as I penned those words, I looked back on what I know to be my conversion day, and I asked myself, could that have been said in that hour? And I confess to you, I wouldn't have known hardly any of those words. I certainly couldn't have defined them. And I am not declaring, I am not saying in this message that a man must have these words 
or communicate in this terminology. But I can very well assure you on the day that I was brought to Christ, I understood this message and it was this God I was dealing with and I knew well. I knew well that he had every right to put me in hell and could have in that very hour. So I understood. I got this message whether they came through these words or not. That was a gospel worthy of our God. I remember thinking that I would go to hell that day. I thought that if I tried to make a dash for the door, God would strike me before I could get out. I dare not to even move. I understood in my limited capacity his sovereign right. Thirdly, we shall see that no gospel is a gospel worthy of our God that does not demand of man a total reversal of his nature. No gospel is a gospel worthy of our God that does not demand of man a total reversal of his nature and a change of his life in every part. Again, we shall see it in our text. In all of the scripture, it is my opinion and others that I've read, but I will say it is my opinion that in all of the scripture there could be found no more powerful and graphic and complete text for us to fulfill that purpose of demonstrating this gospel than this text which I have read in your hearing here today. This unlike the plethora of painted false gospels of today, this is a hard message to hear. Someone has called this message from Ezekiel here, quote, the most terrible. One might say the most repellent of all Ezekiel's prophetic utterances. And someone else has called it the most painful chapter in all the Bible. The scene is, to say the least, despicable, unnerving, and yes, even appalling. One commentator said the whole scene may have taken, may have been painted from the real life of Israel. Such a birth as is described here may well have actually been witnessed during the march of the exiles when the brutality of their Chaldean drivers allowed no halt and the child fresh born was left 
to perish of neglect. Hmm. As hard as this passage may be to entertain to our modern sensibilities, it surely must be preached if ever we are to know a true gospel, a gospel worthy of our God. And so then we take up our next, our text, we take up our text, and immediately we are admonished with the demand of God to take up this message. Verse 2, Say, Son of Man, the Lord came saying, Son of Man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Right at the outset, we have a divine mandate to cause Jerusalem to hear this message. Three words in the original Hebrew strike our hearts into undistracted attentiveness right at the outset. We have the word cause. Son of man, cause. Calvin translates it, lay open. Literally, it refers to a superior Stooping in kindness down to an inferior. The Lord through the prophet, the Lord through the prophet would stoop down to fix their gaze. Undistracted, I said, undistracted on what it is he would say. I still marvel and enjoy to watch some of you mothers, especially you teachers, how that when a little child comes to you, you stoop down to engage directly their attention, help them. That's the idea conveyed in this word, cause. God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, go there and I'll stoop down and I'll be sure that they have my attention and I have their attention and I'll teach them. I was always blessed in the video, in the news videos at times before the queen mother died. To watch her among the public. The Queen of England. A woman whose reign will be described in volumes for years to come, no doubt. She'd go along the way and if a little child came with a flower, she would stoop down. What a picture. What a picture. A sovereign. Superior, stooping down to inferior. That's the picture described in this word, cause. Oh, Ezekiel, 
go out there and cause my people to know that I will stoop down. I have a word to say. Stoop down. I'll say it. Mm. This is the job, of course, of divine revelation. The word of God stoops down to us. And what, what is it? Says our prophet. What is it that our prophet says that he would stoop down to cause in this verse? Well, cause them to know. Literally, it means to ascertain by seeing. It's not just a, it's not an intuitive knowledge. It's not resident within them. It's not just a knowledge from a casual passing glance. This word means to ascertain by seeing, by having a fixed gaze. So the Holy Spirit of God tells Ezekiel, go down and Go down to the Israel and, and tell them that I, I would stoop down, I would cause them, I would stoop down that they may know, that they may see with certainty. I will stoop down so that Israel may know and ascertain with no deception what it is that I am going to say. And what is he going to say to them? What is the thing that he would stoop down to cause them to fix their attention and gaze? What is it that he will speak to them about? And here it is in verse 2. Her abominations. The Hebrew word. To'a. Ball, toe ball. The literal. In our grammar, we would pronounce the Hebrew word toe ball. It literally means an object most disgusting. An indescribable defilement and pollution. We literally have no English word to translate it that would convey the full impact of its meanings, but they chose this best word they had, abominations. Says the Lord in this text, I will stoop down now, Ezekiel, and I will make my people see with perception how utterly vile, indescribably defiled, diseased, and disgusting they really are. And what follows certainly achieves the task. And so right at the outset, 
We are given this mandate to hear this gospel. And here it is. Here is the first mark I gave you. Here is the first mark of a gospel that honors God. It must begin with a full, faithful, and unmistakable witness of man's true condition. Here it is. Here it is. Oh, there are so many different images that have been used in the sacred volume to describe this transition that we call salvation. The message of the gospel, the intent of the gospel, the salvation of sinners. Many things have been used, different descriptions, different images in the scriptures to describe this salvation. Maurice Roberts, in a sermon in 1988, Maurice Roberts said this, The act of God in our regeneration is so momentous that no single category of thought is sufficient to describe the changes it brings about in and for us. He said, it is an eruption from death into life. It is a translation from darkness to light. It is an initiation from folly into wisdom. It is a second birth, a begetting, a transition from the broken covenant into a saving covenant. It is an immigration from the land of non-entity into that of full citizenship. It is a manumission from thraldom and tyranny into full and glorious freedom in a word, it is a coming home to God. And in that simple paragraph, Maurice Roberts attempts just to, just to name some of the categories of thought that would help us try to understand this whole business of salvation. This gospel. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But you see, none of this will ever be realized until God stoops down in gospel truth and causes men to see their abomination. I remember back in the 70s, even back then, that Way back gone hour, over 50 years ago, you'd often hear preachers say something about something like this. We're not having trouble getting people saved today. We're having a lot of trouble getting people lost. 
And as faulty as that statement may be in many ways theologically, it hits home to a point that's true. Salvation means nothing until the sinner is first brought to understand his knowledge. So our God says to the prophet, I'll stoop down, I'll stoop down and I'll engage their attention in such a way I will cause them to know and see their abomination. Somebody said much later, much earlier rather, in the 1800s, said the main difficulty in producing a moral reformation among men is to convince them of their degradation, of the low level to which they have sunk. The first thing to be done is to hold up to their view some bright mirror in which they may discern clearly what manner of men they are. Such a mirror is provided for us in this chapter. A mirror. This generation in which we are living right now is a generation that is unparalleled in its narcissism. And I fear that from most pulpits across America this morning, including some that we are very familiar with, ourselves and our families are exposed to, in most pulpits across America today, there is no interest whatsoever in holding up this bright mirror. That the commentator speaks about. Our God would cause Israel, would stoop down in order to cause Israel to see by use of an elaborate and haunting allegory to see what sort of men they are. And verse 3 begins that story. I say it. Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Hmm. Thy birth, and if you'll notice the good old King James Bible marginal reading and the word birth is cutting out. Hmm. And the reason they put that marginal note there is because the Hebrew word literally means digging out. Thy digging out and thy nativity, which is a Hebrew word that literally refers to lineage. So in other words, at the very moment, not to seek to be in any way vulgar, but at the very moment when this infant was digged out. It came out with a lineage. And here's that lineage, how it's described. It's of the land of Canaan. Oh, what a sweeping, 
all-encompassing, universal declaration of damnation is this. You were digged out. And at the instant of your digging out, your lineage was that you were from a Canaanite people. This I said, and I want to say it again because I want to emphasize the extent of it all. This was a sweeping, all-encompassing, universal declaration of a damnable existence. Canaanite. This is a pedigree of the vilest and most damnable corruption ever known on earth to be called, to be known, to be Canaanite. It mattered not where they were born. Volumes have been written in controversy about this verse. Why the prophet said this. He spoke to these people. These people were not Canaanites, strictly speaking, in terms of... But it all comes to naught. All the reading I did, it all comes to naught. Because you see, he's not saying you were just Canaanite because you were geographically born in that location. He said you were born Canaanite in your heart. An American couple can take a flight to Italy today and she may go into labor and deliver that child in Italy, but it'll not be Italian. It's America. Notwithstanding that it came in the world in Italy. And our God is saying to Israel, it didn't make any difference whether these were born in the wilderness or born in the land of Canaan or born in the land of Egypt. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about their corrupt nature. He's talking about their abomination. He said the day you were digged out, you were Canaanite. That's what you were. You were Canaanite. You were polluted. You were given to incest, corruption, idolatry, corruption with animals, human sacrifices, all the things for which we know and secular history knows that Canaanites, the Canaanites were guilty of all of the things that, that occupied their pagan existence. God stoops down through the prophet and looks Israel in the eye closely and gets her attention and says, the day that you were born, you were Canaanite. And then, just as if to dig in that womb more deeply, he names two of the vilest of all those Canaanite hordes. He says, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. 
There could never be a pedigree more vile, more corrupt, more deeply godless than this. What the prophet, what God through the prophet would have these people know. What God through the prophet would have us know this morning. That from the instant of your birth, there is no goodness in you. There is no spark of, a, of, of divinity. There is nothing, nothing but shame, disgrace, vile, ungodliness, terrible, pollution. That's from the day you were digged out. Remember several years ago, Luke remembers. We found ourselves at odds with some folks locally, preachers, that we're still at odds with <laughs> over this truth. That we're born like that. They wanted to say that a child is born innocent until they come to the, quote, age of accountability or age of reason. Well, our God would stoop down and say, I have a message for you. From the day you were digged out, you were Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. There's no more vile races on the face of the earth than these. And he names them and says, that is you. That's you. You have no claim of honor in your pedigree. Hmm. What a thing. This is a gospel. This is a gospel. It's worthy of our God. But now just to paint out this picture with even more graphic detail. If one could be born with so despicable an ancestry, but born nonetheless, born healthy and well, then that one might find a way to live on albeit in corruption, but live on. One might. But the story doesn't stop there. Our God stooping down would cause us to know that our condition is even worse. Much worse. And so in verse 4 he says, And as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. This is a sure sentence of death to both the mother and the child. To be left connected to this 
Canaanite, Hittite, mother of whoredoms, this is the lethal sentence of death. But wait, that's not all either. Neither wast thou washed in water. This poor child has been left not only attached by the cord, but has been left in the filth of their own afterbirth. Every filth, every disease, every fatal contamination possible in the world to a newborn infant's vulnerable frame is all attached in this repulsive scum and you were left in it at your birth the Lord says you were left in it at birth but wait even that's not all even that's not all that this stooping God would have them to know about their abominability. Even that's not all that He would have them to know about their birth condition. He says, Neither wast thou salted at all. Or swaddled at all. Oh, surely, surely if the cord be not cut, surely if the filth be not washed off, surely then this pitiable infant can have at least a salty balm and a wrapping cloth of protection. But no! No. No. Here, here is the gospel description of the sinner's natural condition. Twice in verse 6, he said to me, In thine blood. Oh, what a bloody, disgusting mess is this poor sinner in. Blood, by the way, I said this was a message in word studies. Translated in your King James Bible, blood is actually in the Hebrew, and I don't know why they didn't do it in the Hebrew. It's actually in the plural. It's bloods. Not just his own, but his mother's. He's in total bloods. That Israel might see the totality of their despicable condition. I told you this message was hard to hear, didn't I? It's not just blood. It's bloods. Thou was not Washed in water to supple thee. Thou hast not salted at all. Nor swaddled at all. 
you were left in your bloods. But not just blood. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Just when you think this picture can't be any worse. It is. It's not just blood. It's not just that they're cast out. Verse 5. Thou was cast out in an open feet. Hmm. It's not just cast out. But now. Literally. Trodden down. Trampled. Underfoot. Oh, look at verse word polluted in verse six. You have in that wonderful marginal reading trodden underfoot. Because the Hebrew word means literally to be trampled down, to be run over by every senseless beast of the field. This infant has been cast out in an open field and being run over by everything. I thought it was a very curious, curious and insightful translation the revised version has. It translates this word melting. Mm. Melting. Have you ever seen a deer Georgia side of the road swells up with heat and time, as death is doing its corruption. But then a couple of days later, you come by and it seemed like the creature just melted. Just melted. What a curious translation. One scholar translates it, the revised version rather, translates it melted. Cast out to be run over. Oh, surely you may well say to me this morning, surely this is a horrible scene. Oh, yes. Yes, it is a horrible scene. But I can tell you, right when you think it couldn't be worse, it is. Yes, yes, it's even worse than all of that. If leaving the cord uncut was not awful enough, if leaving the wretched creature in its slime and filth were not terrible enough, if throwing it unwrapped out were not fatal enough, if being trampled and melted by every creature were not horror enough, Surely anyone looking on to this horrible scene would be moved to tears and shamed into compassion. But no, read verse 5. None I pitied thee. Cast out into an open field. A symbol, as it were, of the whole earth. Thrown out into the world. None to have pity. Mm. 
None. Oh, what a word. I could preach an entire message this morning on that single word. None. You remember, you can't forget it. Surely maybe it's already come in your mind. You remember that horrible scene in Luke 16. Man in hell. Oh, and he says to Abraham, just a drop, just a drop. Could somebody just give me just a drop? And what was the answer? Oh, sir, there's none. That word's not used there, but he says, there's a great gulf fixed and nobody can come to you. None. None! Oh! Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 26, even God will laugh at the sinner in the day of his calamity. None will have pity. None will have pity. There was none to have pity on this poor. Somebody summed it up like this. He said, so despicable and repulsive is this infant form that no woman would even come by and care to do it the commonest offices of motherhood. How despicable is this? No woman would even come and pick the creature up and have pity on it. Oh, when you are beyond the pity of motherhood, your condition is desperate indeed. Even God will have no pity on the sinner in the day of his calamity. Oh, here, here, Look hard on this scene today. This is the first stop in a gospel of God's salvation that's worthy of God. Paul said the law came. Romans 7 and verse 9. God stooped down got his attention and when he did Paul said in Romans 7 9 the law came and sin revived and I died this is the first stop in a gospel presentation of a gospel that honors God Oh, how well did the apostle describe it later? Himself, the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, 
When we were born, when we were digged out, our heritage, our lineage, our nativity was that of a Canaanite. And Paul said from our very beginning, we were all there. We were all there. All there. Walking according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience and among whom also we all had our come. In times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The apostle had no doubt or question. This was the first stop in the presentation of the gospel. The sinner must be made to know. Made to know. Psalmist said it in Psalm 51 and verse 5 when he summarized it in these simple words. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Canaanite. Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. There was nothing in you Nothing, nothing to draw down the mercies of God. Deplorable, despicable, disgusting the scene is. So much so that even the heart of a mother would have no pity on it. I can make it no further in the message today, but I'll close with a question. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day? When this God stooped down to your heart and showed you, held up a bright mirror and said, look, this is what I see. Remember that? Oh, if you have no recollection of that, I fear for your soul. This is the first stop in a gospel that's worthy of God. Take up there, Lord willing, next week. Please turn with me in your hymn book. Hymn number 349, stand with me. 349, standing place. Firm on the ground.
sovereign grace they stand before Jehovah strong the only song in that blessed place is thou art worthy thou alone with spotless robes of purest white and branches of They shout with transports of delight The ceaseless universal song Salvation, glory all be paid To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb whose blood was shed, Thou, Thou art worthy, Thou alone.